everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the TMI podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Rocker Priori, and my co-host for today. I'm Alex Hamrick. For today's episode, we have Sophie Bach, who is an associate professor of entrepreneurship at Indiana University Kelly School of Business. Sophie finished her PhD less than 10 years ago and already has over 30 publications that total over 3,500 citations. She's worked with some really great people across the field of entrepreneurship, but more so about Sophie as a person is she's just genuinely one of the nicest people I've met. And interestingly, almost every person I meet for the first time somehow knows Sophie and talks about what a great person she is. So we thought she'd be the best person to kick off this season all about networking, to talk about why she thinks networking is important and give us some advice on do's, don'ts of networking with other people in this field, both senior scholars, peers, or other faculty members. So without further ado, we welcome Sophie for today's episode. So the icebreaker question for season four is if you could have any superpower, what would your superpower be? I'll tell you, as I keep thinking in the back of my head, I, I'll tell you that why it's a, it's a tricky question for me is that I try to be very much, you know, in the moment and appreciative of what, you know, what I have and what can be done as opposed to what I wish I had. So I'm sure there are many things that uh, I wish I had, but they're just not in the, um, in the forefront of my head. Let's, okay, that would be really cool. <laughs> would be to be able to be at two places at the same time. I'm not asking to have the superpower of having more time in the day. I think, you know, these constraints actually help even with writing. I think the time constraints help. I felt more efficient these days when I have a ton more on my plate than when I was a PhD student with less on my plate, which, you know, it was a huge endeavor. And, but I also felt I needed to work on it 24 seven. So I think the time constraints help. But I think I, I um, come to this idea of being at two places at the same time out of, um, you know, sometimes frustration of not being my best when I cannot be at two places at the same time. Personally speaking, even though, even though I, I really try to do my best, um, uh, you know, being a professor and uh, being a mom, there are times where I really wish I could be in the classroom and maybe at 5 p.m. at home at the same time. So I think that's, uh, that's, I think I handle it well, but you know, when you really want to do two things greatly, um, there's always going to be some, um, some parties that feel, um, you know, maybe left behind. And I'm going to say this because this parallels so much all my thinking about social enterprises, which this is what social entrepreneurs go through, right? They're, they need to excel at both doing um, um, running a business successfully from an economic standpoint, but also uh, so you know socially achieving a purpose that's non-economic. And so I think this duality is constant in my life because it's a topic I also study. And I think that would be my superpower, being able to get two places at the same time but still feel the, the effects of the two places, right? So I would not have to miss out on anything. Oh, I like it. So you talk a little bit about, you know, the social entrepreneurship stuff and uh, kind of where your focus is for your research. Can you tell us a bit, back up a bit about how you decided to pursue a career in academia? How did you choose this research topic? Like, how did you get to where you are now? So, um, 
that takes us back in 2006 when I graduated from my um, master's studies in entrepreneurship in Louvain, which is a University Catholic de Louvain, which is a French-speaking Catholic university in Belgium, where I'm from. Um, and in 2006, I wasn't sure what I wanted to um, do with my master's. I was sure I, I am, I was, you know, still I am uh, a lifelong student. I wanted to keep studying. <laughs> and it had been five years already. Um, thankfully, I went for another six. <laughs> totaling up to uh to 11 but um back then i considered going for another um degree in um education i thought i wanted to be a teacher which you know aligns well with what i do today spending um, a good amount of time in the classroom and i i wanted to be a teacher part you know, partially, I guess, because I was familiar with that. So both my parents are um, educators. They're just now retired, but my mom um, was a uh, first grade uh, elementary school teacher. And my dad, um, a, um, middle school, high school uh, teacher of uh, English and Dutch, actually. And so I thought I'd do that. And then I gave it some more thought. I wasn't fully convinced. And so um, as I was pondering over this choice, my master's thesis advisor, Frank Jensen, um, in Louvain, came to me and, and, and presented this teaching assistant, um, which is actually a teaching and research assistant position at Louvain. And um, the way that the research uh, of a PhD student, which kind of came in later in the conversation, was funded is that you were um, 50% of your time serving as a teaching assistant. And so um, engaged in a lot of uh, teaching, which is what I, I wanted or thought I wanted to do. And so he said, we'd like to recruit you in the Department of Management and Entrepreneurship, basically. Um, and I thought it was a great idea. Uh, and I, don't, I hadn't thought about the research at that point. Uh, so what's interesting is that the entry point is teaching. I know the system here is very different where like you're recruiting on your research aspirations. Um, but they're like, the need was really for teaching assistants. And so, um, and at the same time, you know, like you start on this teaching um, assistantship and they said like, you have to start doing your research. And so I was like, oh, okay. Uh, my master's thesis was not a research thesis, which is very usual in Europe. Um, it was like a, a business plan because I was in this entrepreneurship um, major, master's degree. And uh, it was about a biofuel company because I wanted to, you know, create um green um energy um so that is still very much aligned and so when um frank who was my advisor for the thesis but then also uh, went on to be my dissertation chair um said like you know you're going to study entrepreneurship what do you want to study and so he you know he laid out you know like these different tracks that you would see at the babson conference for instance you can study vc or female entrepreneurship or there's this new thing that's called social entrepreneurship it's like, oh, that is intriguing. You know, I had done volunteering that really tapped into a personal court for me. And so I, um, you know, to, to investigate um, and explore that route and say, okay, here's a stack of paper. It was like basically like four papers because 2006, like not very much was published um, back then. And that quickly became my topic. And I started with the literature review, which is not my most highly cited paper, which is great for students to know that, you know, this can be your contribution. Like I didn't know it back then. It was 
part, <laughs> I think I did a decent job, but also I think it was luck in terms of timing, right? I think there wasn't much literature back then. And so, um, so that's, that's how I got into it. Um, and so I applied for a federal grant, which I got and enabled me to, um, to spend a year abroad, which I did at NYU Stern. Um, and I never left the U.S. So this, uh, this at the beginning was like a one-year, you know, exchange. Um, but, you know, it was just too energizing for me to be in the American, North American, you know, academic system. I just, it aligns very well with what I was aspiring um, for. And so, but then I, I thought of going back to Europe, maybe not Belgium um, as a postdoc, um, which is what a lot of students do in Europe, or maybe assistant professorship. Uh, and I looked and interviewed at a few schools until um, Northeastern University um, called me to be recruited for that job. I stayed seven years there. That's a, a great story. Thank you so much. And given this, uh, this episode, this season's all about networking, how important do you think it is for doc students to start networking early um, throughout um, the beginning of their PhD career and even moving forward into junior faculty? I think it's critical to do it and to do so early because networking to me, you know, would be defined in terms of, you know, purposeful, purposeful engagement with other human beings um, in, in view or in the spirit of, of building a long-term relationship, right? So that's how I view networking. It's not about um, adding and multiplying network ties and counting, right? Um, I think it's critical because the few people I met, and I can tell you uh, one name in particular, in my early years of PhD uh, program abroad with my, I didn't know it yet, but my aspirations to, you know, to go to the US later on when I got that grant, um, these people were instrumental in just getting me <laughs> to the US and then from there where I am today. And something that one can work on or comes naturally. I think I'm more of an extrovert. I think personality matters a lot. And to me, it's not something I calculated. It's more like self-reflection on how I engage in these, you know, relationship, you know, building, networking um, efforts over the years. So it's not like I had a I had an agenda. I was genuinely interested in talking to um, to, to people. And so this is just to give you an example where networking matters. These programs, like becoming a visiting scholar, they're not oftentimes formalized, right? So they're like informal and they depend on the ties, the ties that you have or more likely that your advisor has. Um, and so back then I had been to a first uh, conference on entrepreneurship pedagogy in um, Wake Forest, Wake Forest, Wake Forest University in North Carolina. You know, English is, is not my mother tongue, so I, I even remember having a hard time at the immigration, you know, Ernest and the officer. So, you know, this is to say, like, this was a huge learning curve, um, but that didn't prevent me from talking to people at the conference or like rehearsing by heart what I was going to say as I presented the paper. Um, and so, one such person at the conference was Norris Kruger. And Norris uh, and I had, you know, Norris is an inspiration. He's always talking to everybody, right, at the conferences, if you've, you've seen him. And so he was very kind uh, to me and to Frank. 
And so we get home and a few months later, I get this letter saying I've been accepted. And so I was like, okay, great. I'd like to go to the United States. I had done my master's thesis um, exchange in uh, Singapore. So I had explored the East quite a bit already. And I thought, you know, North America would make a lot of sense for academia. And so I emailed Norris, you know, just saying, hey, hi, <laughs> you know, we met at this conference and maybe we have kept, we had kept in touch in the meantime. Um, I asked him for names, ideas of people who to ask because I didn't know scholars um, that were based in the United States that could host me. You know, he gave me five names and I, of course, recognized the names from these, you know, most cited authors. Um, you know, that, you know, without that, I wouldn't be, without Norris as a critical type, you know, in a network of mine that was very, very small, 2008, and Jill saying yes, and then opening, you know, opening the doors uh, either directly to her, her network. So without, without these people saying yes, but without me actually talking to them in the first place, I don't think I'd be here today. I'd be likely in Europe. So, so I, think it's, I think it's critical. So you talked a little bit about like how important this is. And you also said, you know, some people are naturally extroverts and personality can play a role in how comfortable they are with doing this. So with these in-person conferences coming up again for the first time in how many years, what's some advice you have of how doctoral students could network at these conferences with faculty at other schools when they might be a little bit rusty on how to talk to people um, on things both professionally on research and then just personally about like their lives and relating to these people? Yeah, I think um, I think my first step would be to dare doing it, right? And and uh, and knowing that our division in particular is filled with very friendly and open people, um, and we probably all have. I mean, I think you're collecting a few testimonials. We probably all have stories of people who opened up to us when we were in your shoes, um, and so we're not. You know, we're not forgetting those stories. I mean, they're, they were instrumental in the development of our careers. And so um, I think during to do it, but knowing that there is some kind of a safety net, it's like a, a bunch of really friendly and open people who've, who've been through the same process, I think helps. Um, during to do it, the second thing is, um, well, somewhat keep it short. And if you end up talking for an hour, it's just great because some people you connect with more than others and you don't know that in advance. You know, you know that until you, you don't know it until you speak to them, with them. So um, dare to do it. The second thing is like, have an idea of what you want to talk about. <laughs> because I've been, you know, we all have been approached by, um, by some super nice individuals who want to talk to us just for the sake of it. But then, then I'm not sure how I can help. So I think actually, actually always one of my questions, like how can I help you? Because that kind of helps sometimes the student or like the scholar say, well, actually I wanted to ask you this, right? So you may have a question or you want to share something. So it doesn't have to be in my view. So have know what you want to talk about. Have just one little nugget of, you know, um, you know, piece of information that you, you want to share. So it can be, it can be about a paper that is, that is okay, I think. Uh, at some social events, you know, part past a certain hour, sometimes scholars are like, well, <laughs> you know, 
kind of out of the office at this point, but um, it can be about a paper research question, right? Um, it can be, you know, a, you know, a personal, um, personal information. Oh, did you know we were at this conference in Europe and I didn't have a chance to talk to you or we share a friend in common. Like, I want to, I want to know these people. Like, this is how we both kind of expand our network. Like, somebody told me about you, you know, uh, this is a PG team telling me that. Um, and um, I wanted to connect. So that's just a great way of, you know, uh, introducing one another. So have a little idea of what you want to talk about, um, even if it's like simple, because then you can just expound. Um, and I think in my position, like I'm happy to help. I think, you know, um, and I want to hear about what the student is interested in, uh, in doing, you know, for research or in life or, you know, whatever, for vacationing, but I'm happy to offer, you know, help as well. So I think this is the reporting point of, of most uh, uh, scholars who are not juniors anymore. Uh, some things to avoid. And the, four, the fourth thing, I've always done it, who's very efficient, I think, is I follow up by email. So have an, you know, uh, an email follow up um, because we meet a lot of people at the conferences. We may not remember everybody. It depends, you know, if it's after a hectic, you know, presentation session, maybe it's like a, it's, there's a lot of noise, actual noise and just like too many people around and it's hard to remember. Um, and so a follow up email always helps. So I think I think it'd be great. I think everybody's just uh, very uh, eager and excited to be speaking to each other in person again. So I foresee a lot of networking opportunities uh, and um, yeah, a new relationships being formed uh, this summer. Definitely, I know I'm looking forward to it. What are some of the biggest mistakes or bad practices that you suggest uh, students avoid doing when networking? Yeah, and so absolutely. Thank you for the question. Asking about the status of your paper or, you know, inquiring about your paper that is in the, you know, formal process. I think this should be kept in the formal process. I think sometimes uh, there might be a temptation to just keep going on and on and on about your research and taking a lot of time from the person. And I think, I think that is okay. The scholar is really engaged. Uh, in the conversation, but if, you know, if the scholar is saying, well, I got to run to that other session, but uh, why don't you write me an email? Because sometimes for us, it's also, I mean, for me personally, that's how my, my brain functions. It's easier to read, you know, some details of the research. So it's, it's maybe more, more efficient and fruitful for this like purposeful relationship building to just connect so we, we met in person, we discussed briefly the paper and have a follow-up email such that when I return from a conference or late, later on in the day, I can actually look at the, the, you know, the actual question that maybe I didn't have the answer on the tip of my tongue or I just, I just needed more time to, to sit and think. So I think that's, that's a good approach, I think. I don't think you need to, I don't think you need to settle your questions necessarily live. I think it's building the relationship first it's not a transaction right I, I think there's this, this this opposition between transaction uh focus and relationship focus i'm much more relationship focused but i have you know i have a lot of friends now in the academia and they were like not they're not all instrumental relationships i'm genuinely interested in in, in people and what they're working on and how they got there and where they're going next and whatever you know um 
whatever questions may come to my mind. So establishing the relationship to me is way more important because that will lead to you getting the answer you want about your particular methods question or whether it's a good fit for JBV and, you know, I think that's, that will secure you getting the answer that you're expecting that you deserve as opposed to treating it as a transaction. No, that's a good distinction. I think, I think for doc students, a lot of times when people say network, network, you think like, okay, let me go check off the box that I networked, but you're not networking a lot of the times just to get something right. Like you're not going, you sh or you shouldn't be going into it saying, I'm going to talk to Sophie because maybe she'll uh, agree to co-author a paper with me. Um, but maybe more so of let me build a relationship with Sophie so she can know who I am with a per as a person that maybe one day she'll want to co-author with me. That's a big nuance, right? I mean, and I, and I do think that our careers are so long that this relationship building frame and habit of networking pays out, pays off because we ought to have some kind of a long-term perspective in our profession, right? With everything we do, the research projects take a long time to just complete and then publish. Um, the career itself is like decades. So there is no rush. And you know, it's likely that many scholars have a pipeline that's keeping them busy anyway, right? So it's not, you're not gonna have your, I think it's way better, you know, to, to your, um, your observation about you know being becoming a, a becoming co-authors or building a co-authorship relationship that's going to take time and it's unlikely because I don't treat my publications or my research projects as, as transactions right so I don't jump at these opportunities because <laughs> for one I'm trying to you know to to um, to manage uh, and and make sure every paper in my pipeline advances so I cannot just keep adding on because. At some point, there is, you know, there is a, a threshold, like, you know, there's a certain, and it may be different for everybody, but um, I cannot handle more at some point. And so this co-authorship will likely not happen tomorrow or even next month, right? It may just be in the medium term. So I think it makes sense to treat that, the, the encounter as like, oh, you know, let's, let's meet each other. And of course, we're going to talk about research. I mean, we're scholars, we're nerds. So I'm always happy to talk about research. But of course, networking with peers is, is what forms most of your, um, your co-authorship, you know, collaboration, because your peers have the same incentive. If you find great co-authors um, in, you know, in your peer, like assistant professors, when you're starting up or PhD students as well, like I don't think anything is impossible. A team of PhD students can be super, you know, impactful. Um, just nurture these relationships. Also, because I, I have a lot of repeat publications with the same people. Like I have a great group of pretty, <laughs> pretty uh, diverse and, and various co-authors just because I like people. So like, you know, I have my, my friends all over the map in terms of co-authorship, but but I repeat collaborations with them because it's building relationships. So if it works well, we just, you know, we just repeat it. And so that is, um, yeah, that's very important. I did want to ask one more thing. The, the word extroversion version came up multiple times um, from both you guys. And um, there are other, there are some people that 
are more introverted, they don't like networking, or they feel like they're not good at it. So I was wondering if you had any suggestions or just words of encouragement for those that feel like they're not good at it, or they don't want to do it to kind of get them those doc students out there so they can make the most of these conferences? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for one thing, it's, it's hard to put myself in the shoes of an uh, introvert. You're absolutely correct, Alex, to draw this kind of link between extroverts and networking, but it's, it shouldn't be, right? I think networking doesn't have to be loud and exuberant and <laughs> and you know talking to everybody and being the social butterf- social butterfly right so the way i see networking again as you know really relationship building with a purpose over over a long term these are mostly to me one-on-one relationships then 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 i you know i'm i'm invited in a to join another group maybe as a co-author or i form my team with a few of my friends or you know relations i have built over the years but it starts with one-on-one conversations and so i'd be very curious to see if um for introverts this is actually i mean maybe hard to just start but for anybody right nervous to start engaging but once you are engaged since i think a lot of us are welcoming i think this is the biggest hurdle is just to engage in this one-on-one but from there i would see most people being very you know very welcoming open and okay don't forget we're all educators i have in my classroom a mixed bag of um extroverts and introverts and different learning but we're all our teachers in the classroom like dealing with a bunch of students and so I think we learn how to you know how to address the needs and the questions of, of you know various personalities over the years right um and so that's not a problem like I can see if I'm talking more to an extrovert and introvert but it doesn't matter I don't it's not like I have my script or whatever, like depending on the personality type. It's just like I engage with the person. And I, the, the first tip is just to engage, like go over the hurdle of engaging and, and daring, daring to ask that question or just to interrupt and, you know, you know, in a way that's great. That just takes practice, right? I mean, not interrupt, but just people, if, if it's as a social event, everybody's in conversation. So you got to find a way to just say, hey, without being rude, without interrupting too much. But still, if you don't do it, <laughs> I mean, it just never happens. The biggest hurdle is to start a conversation, not the conversation itself, I think, because these are one-on-one, right? So I think this could be really fine for an introvert. And the second thing is, as we emphasized at the beginning, it's not about, you know, transactions and, and numbers. It's not a quantitative game. And so if this is extra hard for some individuals, I don't think, I think to reassure them, the metric is not, is not how many people you spoke to. It's like how many meaningful relationships you built. And likely it's not, you don't do like 20, 20 a day anyways, right? Introvert or extrovert. It's about like the, the intention, so. The last question for you, knowing what you know now, if you could give yourself a piece of advice for when you first started your doctoral program, what advice would you have given yourself? Aim higher. Journal-wise or everything? Journal-wise. It was part of culture where I did my PhD, but um, I have a caveat probably to share, but I think that... um, that reasonable, you know, self-confidence can you, lead you to do great things. 
like um, I would never have imagined that um, that my my PhD paper would be my you know my best paper in terms of citations to this date, and I think I could have placed it higher, but we won't know. I just wish I had tried. I was told this is not for us scholars in this part of the world, you know, almost. Um, I think now it's changed too, but because um, there's a lot, lot more engagement from diverse audiences trying to publish in, in all journals, all international journals. So I think that, you know, with enough grit and enough guidance from more experts, I think a student can achieve a lot. So, and I've just been honored to join a, a project led by a PhD student who's been a fantastic success. And I'm just amazed at how this student has handled it and you know how much she's bloomed in the process. That being said, I think you have to listen to the advice. You know, if somebody says like there are like some critical limits in a database or in something, I think the, the decision could be okay. Let's go for a good fitted journal because, you know, I think this could be very impactful, maybe highly cited, but maybe it doesn't have just the, the quality of data for an A. It doesn't say anything. It's not yourself, it's not your person, it's just the data, for instance, right? And so I think that is reasonable. Um, but if you think you have a shot, if you think you have this instinct, I think I would follow it. Make an informed decision, but that decision could absolutely to be shoot, shooting very high. Right, but you don't think, you know, don't take it for granted that it's not gonna go there. Talk to a few people. If a few people tell you, yeah, no, too limited, maybe listen to them. If <laughs> if a few tell you, yes, absolutely, just be empowered. Sophie, this has been great. Great, I'm excited. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. It was my pleasure, thank you. So again, we wanna say a big thank you to Sophie for joining us for today's episode. We have some really great guests for the last two episodes of this season and for this academic year. Next episode, we will have Dean Shepard on to talk about networking with faculty. And then our last episode of the season will be about networking with peers. So stay tuned for that. We will also have a bonus episode being released sometime in July that will be all about the job market. So you're prepared going into AOM. If you have any suggestions for guests we should have on future episodes or questions you'd like us to ask our guests, you could send an email to the T-M-I-E-N-T-P-O-D at gmail.com email address, and we will be sure to include them in future episodes. So until next time, thanks everyone.